Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Angel Castellanos. Before we get to Angel, I have some announcements to make. First, the website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. Check out all our uh, photos of our guests. You can see some stories that I've written and some of the guests have written. You can see links to all the guests' social media you can see links to all our social media, and that is, of course, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Podcast on Facebook. Follow us, like us, do what you ever got to do, and uh, I'd appreciate that. There are also links to Stitcher Radio and iTunes, where you can subscribe for free in both places. And as always, I ask if you are on iTunes, please give us a good rating. That helps more people find the show. It boosts our presence there. That's always a cool thing. I'd appreciate that. If you want to write me, it's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Angel Castellanos, or if I was going to say it in proper Spanish, Angel Castellanos. Although I'm going to white guy it up and say Angel Castellanos because that's what everybody calls him here in America. He's a California native. His travel website is called Angel's Travel Lounge. Got his own YouTube channel, Twitter, Instagram, of course. And you can find links to all these at TravelTalesPodcast.com. Angel also speaks at a lot of travel conventions and gives a lot of presentations because he speaks very well, as you will soon find out. We've met at some various travel functions around Los Angeles and played phone tag for a bit. And when I say phone tag, I mean he would contact me by email. And I would often forget, or I'd leave town, or he was out of town, whatever. When two people travel a lot, it's hard to get in the same place and do an interview, but luckily we made it happen. We went to his wife's uh, office in Hollywood. Angel lives all the way in Pasadena, so we kind of split the difference in Hollywood. His wife's a lawyer, has a lovely office, and we went down there just before Christmas and recorded this. Angel has been to many, many places around the world, and he had a lot of great travel tales and tips to share. So please enjoy my conversation with Angel Castellanos. Somebody just... Angel Castellanos. Now, do you say angel instead of Angel because Americans can't say Angel? Absolutely. So my, my dad's name was Angelo, so I have the American version, Angel. But, but living in Southern California, a lot of people call me Angel, whatever. Mm-hmm. So an actual L.A. native. Well, Pasadena native. You don't find too many of them in Hollywood. So congratulations, I guess. I don't know what to say. But so what is it like growing up in a place with so many expats and people from other places? I feel a little bit like a unicorn, to be honest. (laughs) We're a rare breed, but luckily for me, uh, I've always been around other cultures. And, you know, you can go a whole day in Southern California speaking Spanish completely, which I think is just really, really cool, uh, you know, growing up in this kind of environment. so. So you're completely bilingual. I am. I'm one of the lucky few that uh, is blessed blessed with speaking a couple of different languages. So I speak Spanish. I speak Italian. I can get by with French, get by in German in a restaurant, kind of. And, you know, I always tell people, as long as you know the five basic phrases in a language, you know, please, thank you, do you speak English, Where, where's the toilet, and can I have a beer? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was in Italy the, for the first time, I went with some people that knew... Spanish, and we got by speaking Spanish. We, we called it Spitalian. Like, if we couldn't get the Italian version, it's like Spanish could get us through. They're very similar, aren't they? They are. They're romance-based languages, but you have to be very careful. You'll piss off an Italian if you start speaking completely in Spanish to them. So, like, uh, when I speak Spanish, and mine's very broken and bad, but when I w- went to uh, Spain, my friends in Spain said I sounded like a Mexican. Which makes sense, because it's all the Spanish I've heard my whole life, you know, so it wouldn't make, why would I sound like I'm from Barcelona, you know, I'm oh, sorry, Barth, you Barcelona. Yeah. You didn't have that lift. 
do people automatically peg your accent well, like when you're in Spain or in South America they, they know exactly where you're from yeah yeah they'll be like uh, you're a North American of some sort and I think Southern Californians especially because of the influx of Mexicans and Central Americans we have a distinct especially if it's not your first language yeah. I really Angelino it up of, hey que paso Holmes I like the Dyers and the Lakers orale, orale. <laughs> so when did the uh, the travel bug hit you and did just is this something your family did from the start yeah my parents were avid travelers and I've had a passport since before I could speak uh, my parents had to sign my first passport so that was always part of my family growing up and my parents were avid travelers but I didn't get a chance to take a trip with them that was memorable enough until I was 13 and so right after graduating junior high we left for three months drove through the southwest drove through Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, sailed the Caribbean, and then drove up the Pacific side. Wow. So you drove to Guatemala. How long did that take? And where did you stop along the way? So we, we stopped, you know, first it was a Southwest trip, and then we entered into Mexico via Texas. And then the first big stop was really Mexico City. And then we went through the Yucatan, uh, Oaxaca, and then crossed the border, which was an interesting experience when you're, you know, 12, 13 years old. And um, yeah, then drove up the Pacific side. Now, what did your parents do that they could take off for three months and just go? Were they teachers? Did they have the summer off? Oh, well, no, my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad worked and just a typical middle class family and we couldn't always travel together because I have so many brothers and so that was my big trip with my parents because growing up my parents would travel just by themselves and we'd get these postcards from them and, I mean there were summers where I wouldn't even see my parents where were the, who would you say with family members that that's who watched over you yeah I would say with family members or my, my brothers are a lot older than I am so I'm the youngest in, in my family. How and many So I have five brothers. Five? Five, yeah. Oh, man. No girls? No girls. My mom is wow. Queen Bee. <laughs> she had a whole uh, volleyball team there. That's, that's, that's incredible. Five brothers. And you're the youngest? I'm the youngest. Oh, my gosh. So by the time you came along, they'd seen it all, pretty much. Exactly. And, and they knew that they could just dump me off with somebody. And, you know, it, coming from a typical um, Latin, Hispanic, Italian family, you know, you, you're always welcome to stay with a cousin or an aunt. And I'd be like, see you later. I, I'm going to have a great summer with my cousins or my brothers. And it's going to be fine. So you're half Italian, half Where's the Spanish. other? Spanish. From yeah, from Spain. Yeah. Okay, so when did your family come to Pasadena? So uh, my grandparents immigrated, and then they left, and then my parents were born somewhere else, and then they came. So it's, it's really this convoluted story of immigration, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. But uh, they, everybody immigrated legally, and you know, we're just one of those lucky success stories that we were able to do that. So when did uh, your idea of doing Travel for a Living start, and when did you start the website, and why? So I always knew that I wanted to monetize my passions. So my very first job in travel was working for a retailer called Distant Lands. It's a travel bookstore and outfitter. Yeah. So I got to know the travel business pretty intimately from an early age. And I actually, I walked in there my very first backpacking trip when I was studying abroad. So I studied abroad. I knew I wanted to backpack afterwards. I needed stuff. And um, so after... Uh, I like I think my my junior year in college I started to work there and I worked there for quite some time got to know the business got to know authors like Pauline Frommer and Rick Steves and um, then I left and I got a real job at a design firm and you know I think I was my soul was suffering at that point <laughs> and I knew that you know okay I wanted to really get out and travel for a living what came first really I mean I mean you must have probably traveled on your own a lot and then when did the blog get into play? So the blog for me was actually the last element because I have a little bit more of a business aspect and a little bit more of a business mind. And I knew that I, I was too afraid to just be a blogger. So I knew that I had to really leverage my expertise in travel to other companies and other brands and really offer that genuine travel experience to them first. And then the blog came, came much later. 
What's your take when you're uh, pitching your site to whether it's sponsors or uh, brands or something like that? What is your your angle on your blog? So for me, it's um, just about traveling smart. So my tagline is travel smart, travel well, and travel often. So I really like to help people get those savvy travel tips and get all that nonsense out of the way so they can really hone in on their travel dreams. So that's what my website's all about, you know, the practical, savvy travel tips and a little bit of travel tech as well. Okay. So uh, how long did it take to get get it off the ground? And did you, from the start, like, figure this is my full-time job or did you keep a day job as well? Yeah, I think at some point we all have a day job. I mean, I don't know how many people completely make all of their money and whether or not they like to admit it. You know, they they really aren't that successful in just the blog alone. So I developed a couple of different revenue streams that I could do, whether it's consulting for major brands or um, giving public talks. So I give about 90 travel talks per year, uh, just giving my advice and my travel tips and everything that I've learned from visiting almost 60 countries. Well, that's great. Um, As a public speaker myself, I didn't know there was a big uh, market for that. So now I'm... There's a whole new stream there. Um, so what are some of the talks that you give? I know you're, the, the L.A. Travel Show is coming up. Are you talking on that one? Yeah, I'll be there both days at the uh, Travel and Adventure Show, and I'm actually speaking at all nine shows on that circuit and the New York Times Travel Show. So Saturdays I'll be talking about traveling smart, packing tips, travel hacks, how to make your life easier on the road, how to not get ripped off. And then Sunday I go into an hour-long session on traveling smart with technology, my favorite apps, how to really use your device abroad without going broke or coming home to a $3,000 phone bill. (laughs) I keep it on airplane mode. What else can I do? Uh, You can download a couple of key apps uh, that just make communicating a whole lot easier. Uh, I use WhatsApp. Is that one of the ones you use? WhatsApp is pretty popular because Android users can use that. Uh, Skype is another one. Uh, But as long as you have that Wi-Fi connection, you're going to be in business. What about a portable Wi-Fi, portable Wi-Fi uh, hotspots or something? I don't really use those because they, either. yeah, they they tend to be slower in speed, I think, <laughs> and they cost a lot of money. I mean, I'm sure you and I can get easily sponsored by them, and a couple of brands have approached me, but I've never really have taken them up on the offer because they they are slow. So I would much rather get a local SIM card. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, for about ten bucks, you can get two gigs of data, and you're good to go. So if you buy your your phone from like the Apple Store, it'll come unlocked. And I think that is the key for most people, because if you purchase it from your cell phone provider, then you have to go through the process of, of having them unlock it. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you, because I was just in Europe for seven weeks, and you helped me out with uh, some Greek island tips. Thank you very much. I ended up going to uh, Paros and Naxos oh, yeah. and Eos, yeah. and uh, I like those islands better than Santorini and Mykonos. Because they were you know, much, much more chill and half the price, really, too, for just as pretty and not as crazy and crowded. So I really liked it. But I didn't get a SIM card, and I almost regretted it a little bit. But I don't use my phone that much. So if I buy a SIM card, say, when I get off the plane uh, in Heathrow, that won't work in the, in the EU? Or <laughs> who knows now with Brexit anymore? No, so... Data roaming is no longer a thing in Europe as of June of 2017. So if you buy a SIM card in the UK, it will work in the European Union. Uh, even though with, with Brexit, you know, that's kind of a scary concept. So I was just in Europe in, uh, in October, and I purchased a SIM card in Poland. Uh, and it worked, you know, in Amsterdam. It worked in France. It worked in the UK. Absolutely no problem. So you have a local number, and people can call you up, and it does also include data? Or is that a separate thing? Yeah, so you definitely have to get one with data because as a traveler, that's probably what you're going to be using the most instead of, um, you know, making phone calls and text messages. But I would recommend buying one in town as opposed to the airports. Just like with everything else, the SIM card's going to be, yeah, 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 very expensive. Okay, so um, you go to these uh, conferences and you take questions from the crowd. What's the most common question you always get asked? How do I travel like you? 
how do you do this for a living? As if you just started yesterday and just said, I'm going to do this. It takes years to build up, right? Absolutely. I think most of us that are in this industry just work day and nights, and we're all entrepreneurs, so we're working these 10, 12-hour days, and it's just a constant non-stop uh, process of emails and planning things and pitching and you know delivering the product all of that good stuff so it's 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 hard so people who, who are thinking about starting a travel blog or want to do what you do what would you say is the biggest hurdle that you've had and what's the hardest part about your job I think the hardest part of the job is uh, getting people to see the value that we bring to them, especially when it comes to tourism boards or um, different brands. You know, they they want um, all of this work for very little money. And just like with everything else in the United States, you know, there's a a big um, difference in the amount of work you put in and the actual pay that you get. And it it all looks... For exposure, man. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell my landlord they need exposure. So everything looks great on Instagram and and on social media, but there is so much work that goes into even when you're on a press trip or um, traveling with a particular company, you know, you are on the clock the whole time. But for me, what I get out of it is just all the emails and feedback that I get from people that say, hey, man, that one tip that you gave me, oh, my gosh, it totally saved my butt or I had a great time in Greece or I did not get ripped off or I did it exactly I packed the way you told me to and I went carry on for the first time ever yes if that's one thing I always that's a recurring thing uh, on the show that uh, never check a bag unless you can help it and I can give 50 different reasons why not to check a bag but people still don't listen and they'll uh, you know baby (laughs) carry on for life Um, what's the biggest packing mistake people make uh, other than just basically bringing too much they don't get over their psychological hurdle they think that the stuff that they're bringing them will bring them happiness on the road, and that's not the case at all. <laughs> and they think, oh, well, why, why, how am I supposed to only travel with three pairs of shoes? I can't do it. And it's, you know, for a lot of for a lot of people, it's not recognizing why they're traveling. They don't ask themselves, well, why am I going on this trip? What do I want out of it? And that has nothing to do with what you're packing inside the bag. So in a crowded travel blog field and there's so many you know every 20 something who's backpacking around has an instagram account and then uh, you know vlog how do you break through uh the clutter and get noticed and uh build an audience for me it's been about being humble and making connections really valuing the relationships i have but approaching travel from a, a very humble place that i'm only one traveler in a long list and so many years of travel. You know, there's going to be the next person who's, who said, well, I've been to 70 countries or I've been to 100 countries. So it's not about saying, you know, my travel is the best way, but it's really sticking to my philosophy that I can certainly help you travel better and travel smarter and achieve your travel dreams. So I'm, I have tunnel vision when it comes to that sort of stuff. Where do you find are the most popular destinations, say, this past year for 2017 that people keep asking you about the most? Where, where are people going? So um, I just noticed that, uh, you know, people are still going to Morocco and going to the Blue Cities. <laughs> I've never been. I still Yeah. yeah. So Morocco is very popular. Malta is showing up on people's lists now. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me about my Mongolia trip. I think there's a lot of interest there. You know, so many million, like over 40 million people travelers uh, american travelers go to italy every single year and so that's a non-stop barrage but with what we learned last night you know asia is really approachable from especially from the west coast yeah absolutely so tell me about mongolia when did you go and how long were you there and what the hell were you doing in mongolia yeah man so i was on an around the world trip so i decided to go from beijing to london completely overland so for beijing i took a train uh, about 32 hours a trans Mongolian train to the capital Ulaanbaatar and I was horseback riding throughout the countryside going from national park to national park on horseback every single day for about five days sleeping in yurts meeting nomadic families drinking mare's milk oh my god so this is Siberia in uh October was it 
Mongolia in oh, oh. Mongolia in October. Oh, yeah. Did you go across Russia? Yeah. So uh, after Mongolia, I went through Siberia, okay. yeah, to Moscow. So then the next step after Mongolia was Lake Bakal, the largest freshwater lake in the world, and I went to a little resort town called Irkutsk. Wow. Okay. Well, let's back it up here for a second. So let's start in Mongolia. Um, I, I got to admit, I don't know much about it, but it looks. Fascinating. So tell me, give me some of the highlights, and if people want to go there, where should they go? Okay, so most people will arrive in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital, and I would get the heck out of Dodge as quickly as possible because it's kind of like this mix-mash of architecture, old, almost Soviet-style city, a State Department store, and so I stayed there one night just to get over my train trip, and then my outfitter uh, picked me up, and we immediately drove about an hour and a half into the countryside to the main horse camp. And um, the great thing about Mongolia and what's so fascinating is you don't know if you're the first human to walk on a path or if you're just one of many of thousands of humans in a long history to walk there. It just has this romantic element of being unspoiled but yet open. It's, I imagine certain parts of America looked like this, you know, 200 years ago. And uh, the people that you'll meet are incredibly friendly. So there's this nomadic culture where they live in these yurts, in these round, very specific tents. But then they move. They have their summer homes and then they have their winter homes. But um, they are obliged to bring you into their homes because in the winter months, you know, people, people will not survive. Absolutely. People will die unless they come into the yurt. How cold was it when you were there in October? So it, for Southern California boy, it was uh, pretty cold. One morning I, we woke up and it was completely white outside. So the first major day of horse trekking. So day one, we kind of went on a practice ride, an assessment ride. My guide was checking me out. His name was Hishke. He's a master horseman. And that's the great thing about Mongolia. They're all incredible horse people. So the second day was like the major day. We were riding for five and a half hours. And it started snowing just on the trail as we were going over this mountain pass and just the wind was blowing but sure enough I had my Mongolian coat that uh, Hishke's mom sewed and I was wearing that I don't know no well it was all natural I don't know (laughs) I don't know any of that stuff so uh, yeah it was it was pretty darn cold and in the yurts there it's just one stove so it's heated by you know whatever you put inside to to burn it up how good of a horse rider were you before and after this? So I was okay. You know, growing up in Southern California, we do have a horse culture here. You know, Ronald Reagan was on horseback all the time. There's ranches. And so I was pretty familiar with horses and have been horseback riding in uh, Uruguay and Argentina with the gauchos. Been on a camel trek in Morocco. So I was pretty familiar with horseback riding but these are very specific horses they're small short squatty short hair and they're they're just like workhorses they just go man and uh, the mongolians ride a very specific way where you stand up in your not on the saddle but you stand up in your stirrup and you're completely upright on the horse and that takes a lot of expertise a lot of core and it's just Really hardcore. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be in amazing shape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hishke, my, my guy throughout the whole thing was just really strong dude. Were you alone uh, or were there other media with you on this thing? No, I was the only media on this trip. So October is really the off season for Mongolia. So they brought me in and this camp has like 300 horses. It's a major outfitter for Mongolia. And... Um, I was joined by some customers of theirs who were going on a trek. So I actually got to see what the customers experience as well on that second day. Okay. Um, So how long across did the – and so Mongolia lasted how long? So Mongolia was five days. Okay. And that's when, or did you take the train journey before or after that? So uh, that was, I, I got there on the Trans-Mongolian. Okay. So then I picked up the Trans-Siberian gotcha. to Siberia, eventually to Moscow. And how cold was that? That was still very, very cold. <laughs> <laughs> but the weather, quote unquote, hadn't turned uh, in Russia yet. So there wasn't 
completely snow on the ground. It wasn't really that cold. I'm talking like in the 20s until I got to Moscow. I have not been to Russia yet, so tell me in terms of this, it's a very famous train, but what were the conditions and, and say, level of quote-unquote luxury? Yeah, so there's three classes, and of course, first class, you have nice wooden panels. It's just two berths in your compartment. There's electricity in your compartment. And uh, second class is where I stayed, so I stayed with the people. And I had, uh, it was a four-berth compartment. Uh, There was no electricity uh, in my compartment, so we all kind of had to share adapters and whatnot in the hallway. And uh, you have a wagon attendant, so and they kind of check on you and hold your passport and do all that stuff. There's hot water uh, on the train in each compartment, and that's just about it. There's no showers. There is a bathroom on in your wagon. Uh, and then there's third class, which is completely open. So that's like more of a hostile experience. And that's where you have like the Russian dudes who are getting off the train in their underwear to just like have a breather. But it's a very um, just uh, convivial experience. Everyone is sharing stuff. There's a dining car that's super expensive. So everyone is sharing their food. And you get the train does stop. So it's not like you're on the train completely the whole time. It stops and you can buy food from these sweet little babushkas who are (laughs) selling homemade goods out of, you know, like uh, shopping carts. (laughs) How long were you on that train? So that was a very small train ride, just like 27 hours from Mongolia to uh, Lake Bacall to Irkutsk. So uh, were people, I'm assuming just about everybody on this train is Russian or were there some other tourists? No, actually. So going from Beijing to Mongolia, people were getting out on holiday. So it was full of Chinese people going to Russia for their, you know, national holiday at the beginning of October. And then from Mongolia to uh, Russia, it was a little bit more international. But from Siberia to Moscow, it was quite a mixed crowd. So we had a Japanese guy in my car. We had a German guy in my car. I roomed with a Dutch guy. And, you know, you have Chinese and Russians as well, Mongolians. Wow. Seems like quite an experience. So how, um, you know, Russia's a lot in the news right now. Um, Did you, as an American, uh, learn anything or did you get any kind of feedback from anybody there? Are they asking about us and what's happening now? Yeah. So one of the reasons why I wanted to go there was because it was that unknown. I didn't know how I would be treated or what people were saying. And I really wanted to get to know that Russian soul. So there's this thing in Russia called Russian face where they're... Unsmiling, I'm guessing. Yes, very (laughs) stoic, not smiling, looking deadpan at you no matter what you're saying. And I think Russians just don't care about anything other than themselves and what's happening in their country. And I experienced absolutely zero animosity. Nobody treated me poorly. Nobody even asked about our political situation. So basically, he didn't acknowledge you at all. <laughs> yeah, I was just a ghost. I was a ghost God. in Russia. They're like, and they looked at me a little funny, like, oh, well, what are you doing here? But he yeah, you know, I'm this happy, like, Southern Californian yeah. guy. I'm the complete opposite of their culture. And yeah, no, everyone treated me very, very just nice and normal. It was zero, zero animosity at all. So what does the largest freshwater lake in the world look like? I mean, I live, uh, I grew up near the Great Lakes, which are, I mean, pretty enormous in terms of lakes. And some might call them great. Um, but uh, I can't imagine uh, one bigger than Lake Superior just to look at it. It must look like an ocean. It definitely looks like an ocean. Uh, so this lake has more fresh water than all of the Great Lakes combined. So it is absolutely massive, absolutely deep. There's uh, creatures that you have never heard of. They're, they have their own like freshwater seal. So a lot of the boats have the seal on top of the boats, oh, just wow. like as their symbol. So there's all these like trippy animals there. And uh, it was super windy while I was there. So the waves were actually quite massive, oh. to be honest. And it's just, um, it just goes as far as the eye can see. Did you uh, eat anything that came out of the, uh, the, the big lake? And Any good fish? Yeah, so they have loads of fish. I mean, that's what the lake is all about. So, uh, you know, they try to tell you, well, it's kind of like salmon, but 
it doesn't taste like salmon. It's a little bit more like a trout-ish kind of a fish. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's fresh water. Yeah. So, um, how was it in terms of conditions? Going, did you end up in St. Petersburg? Yeah. So after after Moscow, I went to St. Petersburg. You know, that's really big with the cruise ship people, and it's really big with the older American crowd. But I think. You know, it's the kind of city that'll just knock your socks off if you let it. So I stayed in one of the same squares. I rented an Airbnb, and I because in Moscow I was in a pretty nice hotel. I was in a four-star hotel after 72 hours on the train. I wanted a nice hotel. I get that. And uh, so I rented an Airbnb, and I just wanted to go local and. Um, it's full of just great sights. You know, if you kind of squint your eyes, it can remind you a little bit like Vienna. It's just one of those classical cities. It really kind of took off in the 1700s when Peter the Great wanted to bring Russia into more of a European style of living. And um, it's great. I, I love St. Petersburg. I heard about like St. Petersburg and Moscow, and then there's the rest of Russia. You know, and then almost like there's New York and L.A. and then there's, you know, there's America. You know what I mean? Is, is that kind of that vibe? I mean, they're very the two international cities and then there's pretty much homogenous Russia. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. There's one other city that the train stopped at called Ekaterinburg. Um, but just going through that whole Russian countryside. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the Trans-Siberian is to see what this big country had to offer. But it's just a lot of countryside, a lot of, you know, country houses for Russian oligarchs, mm-hmm. a lot of derelict factories that even forests are just growing in these factories. And there's still the, the hammer and sickle on these factories that has just been completely abandoned. That's wild. So, I mean, you were there for, what, a couple weeks, you said? Yeah. So I left, you know, because of the the visa, I couldn't be more there more than a month. And so I was in Russia for about two weeks, I would say, total. Where was the next stop? So after St. Petersburg, went back to Moscow, and then Warsaw was the next stop. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of continue that linear train line to the next European capital. And I've been to southern Poland, but never Warsaw. And what I loved about Warsaw is that it's one of those cities that really respects the old tradition because it was completely decimated in World War II. And they rebuilt the whole thing, but certain key aspects of it have been built in the old style. And then there's a lot of the new city centers. And it's just really just a, a hip happening city. A lot of young people... Cool town. Yeah, I've been to Krakow, but not, not Warsaw. Krakow I loved. I thought it was really beautiful. Like, almost like Prague. It's super but charming. Yeah, it's charming and like half the price of Prague and not as touristy. And I thought it was really nice. I would go back there. But I'd like to see Warsaw as well. But um, so you were making your way across Europe. Where did you end? And just started to get warmer and... Food a little more tastier as you went. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the food in Warsaw was phenomenal, actually. So um, my friends who I had met in Mongolia on the horse track, they were from Warsaw. They're like, hey, let's come hang out. So I met them on a Monday night, and they were um, like good Polish people. They were hungover from partying all weekend. And they said, well, we're not going to drink too much. So they took me to this phenomenal restaurant, and then they took me to these old-timey Soviet-style bars where a shot of vodka is one euro, and it's decorated in this 1960s Soviet style. Uh, yeah, so it's called Ostalgia, you know, nostalgia for the Eastern times. And the, my friends were just telling me about what it was like to live in the Soviet times and what their grandparents went through and all this stuff. And um, yeah, we had a great, great time. And they uh, still drunk me under the table because <laughs> they're Polish and they're excellent drinkers. So drank a lot of vodka. And so once I arrived in Berlin, it was like 72 degrees. The sun was shining. This is, you know, late October now. And people were sunbathing on the River Spree. As the train pulled in, I just saw this incredible sunshine. And I was just so happy to be out of the cold. <laughs> so where did, it, where did it take you after that? Where did you keep going west? Yeah, continued on west. I took a little bit of a detour to Lyon, which is a, a city that's near and dear to my heart. But before that, so after Berlin, I went to Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is like, in my opinion, the new foodie capital of Europe. Uh, really great things happening there. I went to this place called Food Holland, where if you imagine, like, you know, we have food trucks here in L.A. They have all these really great stalls.
walls that are just like, you know, Korean barbecue tacos and oysters and all this stuff that you can just go and, and have a great time with your friends. I rented a boat for the first time in Amsterdam oh, really? and just sailed so the canals. Long. No, with, with my friends. So okay. it's about 60 euro for two hours and you do it through this app. You unlock the boat, bring all the picnic supplies and just have a great time going through the canals. So the weather was warm enough oh, cool. and it was also the first day of the electric dance uh, music uh, festival in Amsterdam, dance event, um, ADE. And so there were lots of parties going on. So then after Amsterdam, I went to Lyon. My friends live in Lyon, and it was one of my friend's birthdays. So I went to this incredible birthday party. We had great food in Lyon, and then Paris, then finished in London. Now we're sitting in your wife's office. Your wife is a lawyer. And uh, it's a beautiful office. Now, she has to come here every day and hear stories from you. How does she handle that? Well, she does get to travel with me sometimes. <laughs> so earlier this year, she went with me to Italy, to Lake Como, and we went to Ireland together. So she does get some time on the road, and, and her, her employer is really generous with giving her a little bit more than the average American gets. So the average American only gets two weeks, and that's super unfortunate. I yeah. hate that. Uh, system, but uh, she was able to travel a little bit more. So she does get some trips with me. Is there a, f is there a fear that, um, I know I've talked to a couple other travel bloggers that have suffered from this, and sometimes I get it as well. You, you, it's easy to get burned out. Like you can, as much as we love travel, when it becomes your job, sometimes you have to take trips you necessarily don't want to take. Sometimes you find yourself in that airport at five in the morning and you're delayed and you're going I just want to go home and so have you ever ran into that wall sometime and you just like I just want to go to home to bed do you get that I'm going to be the dissenter and say I don't get that. <laughs> Bad things happen on the road, but again, I just try to be as humble as possible. I'm lucky that I get to do what I do. I mean, people pay me to live my life, to, to talk about travel, to teach my passion and to be out in the world. And I think if, if I have that on the forefront of my mind, all of that nonsense that happens on the road, and I'm a happy-go-lucky guy, so I know misery loves company, but I'm not going to sit here and be bitter about the train strike that made me get a, an airplane ticket instead of taking the overnight train or whatever. What was your biggest, uh, did you ever have any like, scary travel stories, whether it's like on a train or like a scary plane ride or a boat or anything? Yeah. So the first time I ever saw somebody get like mugged at gunpoint was in Rio de Janeiro. I mean, fortunately for me, I've never been ripped off or pickpocketed out of all the countries I've traveled to. And, um, you know, I've been part of a train strike where they just literally shut the windows and the train station shuts down. And I've had to buy a ticket at the airport. And that was really interesting a one-way ticket post 9-11 so that's never yeah that's never a good thing um i've ran out of money i've slept on benches uh you know things things happen but i think that just makes me a better traveler and i have these stories to teach people with now and to make them a better traveler and you know i'm sure i will get pickpocketed at some point but they're not going to get the best of me yeah where was the train strike was it france it was a french rail strike, sure. but I was in Italy. Oh, okay. So I had purchased my ticket through the French National Railway. So they're like, yep, nope, no trains going to France. Sorry, buddy. And uh, we had to make our way to uh, Bologna, to the airport there, and buy a ticket to Paris because we were eventually flying home from Paris. Oh. Yeah, I've ran out of money. Uh, so back in my earlier trips, when we were <laughs> still learning how to use ATM machines and matching the the symbols from the back of the card to the machines oh, yeah. when you yeah exactly so you you had to first do that um they wouldn't take our washington mutual debit cards at the time and we literally ran out of money had to sell the wine that we had to strangers on the street to get money in portugal yeah yeah and selling wine in portugal is not easy you can get it everywhere so it's like they're so you're selling black market wine on the street yeah that's Technology has really changed travel completely. I mean, I'm older than you. I mean, when I first went out of college to Europe, that was the first time I left the country, and I was using traveler's checks. And if you can look back that far, I mean, that's pre-internet, pre-all that. You know, no apps, no cell phones. Right. 
nothing. So just like I'm writing postcards to people, and it was, it has completely changed everything. So when you look ahead, where do you see the travel industry going? And what do you think the next big thing will be? I think blockchain is going to change a lot of things. You know, I just installed the Apple Pay system on my phone that allows you to use Apple Pay to pay another person like you would with Venmo or PayPal. And I think that is going to continue to evolve in a way where we're much more connected. And I think a lot of bigger corporations like, let's say, Google, you know, they just installed airport maps into their native mapping app makes sense to you and I as as professional travelers and there have been other apps that have been doing that but now those other apps are probably going to go away and people will just rely on Google you know Google again has introduced this Project Fi. Have you heard of that? No. Project Fi. So it's a phone plan through Google that works in about 135 countries and you just pay $10 per gig for data. So you know AT&T and all the, Verizon and all these guys that don't have that. Now, T-Mobile's over on one side. They offer free international data roaming for most people. But if you want to look around and maybe don't want to bother getting that SIM card that we talked about, maybe you go through Project Fi with Google, oh. and that's your phone company now. That's great. Yeah. So is there a travel trend that's going on right now that you would like to see go away? Yes, very much so. Oh my gosh. I'm probably like the most opinionated person. And I think it's the travel trend that we see on Instagram where it's the the pretty girl with flowing hair and this, you know, unbelievably in a bikini, over Photoshop destination, oversaturated destination. And I think, you know, great travel picture books have been around for a long time. You know, great pictures. I'm not against great pictures, but I'm against people sort of boasting and presenting these destinations not the way they truly are, but also, um, you know, not giving anything back to fellow travelers. And I think that's what bothers me the most. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in romanticizing travel. I'm just a romantic person by nature. But, you know, if you look on some things on Instagram, you're like, no way. The average person cannot achieve this picture. Sorry. <laughs> and you're not teaching anybody anything from this picture. So what's the point here? Is, what, do you, what are your thoughts on things like TripAdvisor? When I, like I'll take a tour somewhere and they'll hand you the card and be sure to give us a good review and or Yelp or something like that. I mean, is he putting too much power in the people who you know? Some people take power in like I'm going to give them a bad review and then you're going to. You know, restaurant owners are really going through this with yeah, a problem. A restaurant could be made or broken by a bad Yelp review. Imagine, you know, spending two years opening up a restaurant and then getting a bad Yelp review upon opening by some guy who's like, I don't like the fried chicken here. It sucks. <laughs> no, but I think crowdsourcing will always be a thing. Um, but, you know, most people have to use reason with it. You know, I read reviews just as much as the next person, but I take them with a grain of salt. And I think most people can really understand how genuine a review truly is. So, you know, professionally, I don't do those sort of TripAdvisor reviews for people. I just think that's nonsense. Your review is going to be on my website and I'll recommend, you know, your, your establishment, restaurant, hotel, property, tourism board, whatever, but I'm not going to go to the TripAdvisor. You know, I read TripAdvisor, like like the next person, but I don't actively you know participate in that because that's just a small segment of the puzzle, I think, and that's what most people don't really focus in on. You've been a lot of places, so this is where we find out your top lists, top three countries you could go back to over and over and over again. Well, <laughs> that's pretty interesting because I sometimes by nature do go back to those places. So, you know, London is a very sp- special place for me because we used to live there. My wife went to law school there and interned there and we rent an apartment every single year in Paris. Um, and I have friends in Lyon. I go to Italy every single year. But aside from those places, like I think Bali is one of the most special places on the planet um, because for me, you know, they're, they're all about balance and uh, it's one of the most balanced places I've ever been to in terms of it's got just as good food, 
uh, culture, be natural beauty, activities, everything that you want to do is in this one small little magical island. Yeah. Top three uh, countries that you don't get enough love, that, that are undes undeserved or underserved, you think, by tourists? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, a country like Mongolia, you know, that is just not on most people's radar because it's pretty difficult to get to. But I think even countries like the Balkan countries don't get enough love. Like I went to Siberia, I'm uh, uh, Serbia mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, those countries on my honeymoon. <laughs> and yeah, and they, it was phenomenal. And um, I think certain places in Latin America, like, you know, you have everybody going to Costa Rica because it's safe and fun. And, you know, Honduras has been in the news quite a bit, but that's a phenomenal country. Cheap uh, scuba diving lessons, wonderful islands, amazing Mayan ruins, just everything that you would want out of a Central American country is there, but just people have it in their mind that it's super dangerous for whatever reason. Yeah, I was in uh, Roatan, yeah. and I, I dove there for a week, but I remember I had a, I had a uh, flight going through San Pedro de Sula, yeah. which it was a tight connection. And if I missed it, I said, oh, I'll just spend a night there. And then I looked it up, yeah. and it's like Boom. the most dangerous city in the world, yeah. like the highest murder rate in the world. I went, oh, boy, I hope they make that connection. <laughs> Luckily, I did. But, uh, yeah, but uh, in terms of beauty, absolutely. Um, give well, me another place. I think um, also when it comes to Asia, you know, a lot of people don't know uh, certain parts of China very well. Now... You know, you have the main cities, Beijing and, and Shanghai, but um, like Guangzhou is just like super, super nice. And there's certain parts of Japan as well. So I think, you know, you can find these wonderful destinations. Um, and there's second cities, too, uh, throughout Europe, like Lyon that we've been talking about that, you know, it's not on people's radar, but it's just phenomenal. Um, give me a place that maybe you think is a little overrated and too popular for its own good? Iceland. <laughs> go, go to the Faroe Islands instead or Greenland. I think Greenland is one of the next hot spots for people. You've been to Greenland. What is there to do there? Was it, you have not been to Greenland. Okay. Have you been to... Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, have you been to the Faroe Islands? No, it's on my list. You've been to Iceland? Yes. I have not been. Too, is it just too many people? No. Yeah, it's 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 getting a little overrun. I mean, it has incredible natural beauty and, and wonderful things to offer people, but it's not, um, you know, when you have all these big tour groups now, it's getting that Italy feel to it, to where even, even Rick Steves is coming out with a book on Iceland. <laughs> so there's going to be towns in there that will just be absolutely quote-unquote ruined, but will have this wonderful influx of money and tourism. So... So there's a balance. I think, you know, if you haven't been to Iceland yet, you've missed the boat, wait a couple of years, go somewhere else. Top three uh, Mexico destinations that maybe people don't know. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, well, people know it. Well, but uh, So Guadalajara, I think, to me, typifies what most people dream of when it comes to Mexico. So, um, you know, mariachis come from there. It just has that authentic, you know, s Mexican, Spanish feel to it. You know, Oaxaca is really great if, if you love the culture. But just if you look at that Yucatan Peninsula, there's so many opportunities to get up in the hills and up with the indigenous people, which is one of the things that I did as a young kid that was just phenomenal. Um, your next trip, where are you headed? Uh, so Q1, I'm doing a bunch of speaking. So I'm going to Denver for a trade show, then uh, New York to speak to the New York Times Travel Show. But personally, um, I just uh, told somebody that I'm going to Chile and Patagonia, Atacama Desert, Easter Island for the first time. Oh, awesome. I was, uh, I didn't, I've never been to Chile. Well, I've been to a bit. Well, I went to Antarctica in February on a cruise that I was working, so I had to meet the ship in Ushuaia, um, but I didn't get to see Chile. The boat had just come through the fjords in Chile, so I didn't get to go there, but I heard um, Chile is beautiful, of course, but uh, can be a little pricey from what I heard, and maybe, maybe their cities aren't as fun, maybe, I've heard. 
So um, I'm basically going to fly into Santiago and then go to the Atacama Desert, Easter Island, do that whole thing, and then cross over into Patagonia. So see the Chilean side of Patagonia. So it's very, I'll start with a city like Santiago and then end with Buenos Aires. So I'll be end capped by these two big cities. Uh, Easter Island, tough to get to. That's so many people haven't been. Uh, What do you... Was it always on your list? I mean, is this something that you were, you've been trying to get for a while? So I was just having this conversation with my wife. Like, how many natural of these, like, wonders of the world have I actually seen? So we're counting. I was like, oh, Easter Island. I've not done that. And, you know, you, you, you see it. You know about it. But who actually goes there? So I definitely, it's piqued my curiosity in the last couple of years. You said um, uh, Costa Rica you've been to and people know it. But maybe, like you said, it's, it's getting a little touristy and if people want an alternative you mentioned honduras is there another one i like panama as well i thought that was nicaragua especially if you love surfing man nicaragua has amazing surf spots Mm -hmm. it it doesn't have the tourist infrastructure like uh, costa rica does but it just has you know everything in terms of natural beauty zip lining you know forests and amazing beaches have you been to colombia at all i still haven't been to colombia no colombia is on everybody's spot you know i know a guy an american guy who who bought an apartment in uh colombia and does airbnb but he lives in europe and he just knows that that's the next hot spot and uh yeah my godfather is turning 80 years old next year he's like you know if i was your age i'd move to colombia it's the next hot spot he was just there not too long ago and, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to go there. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Have you been to the Galapagos? I have not. Me either. That's another tough one to get to, and it uh, can be a little pricey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely expensive. Get, get the uh, tour people to pay for you. You know, that's, this is the beauty of the, the gig. Now, I spend a lot of time in Europe. I've been to about 20 countries in Europe, and just because of my heritage and my interests, I was an art history minor, and um, I just love what Europe has to offer. We kind of have the same vibe when it comes to food and performing and lifestyle and stuff like that your top three things to eat whenever you go to europe Ooh, ooh, my good italy and spain are a given you know italy and france and everything but uh what are the things you can't leave without eating in so let's say in france i think you have to try in france an andouillette which is a a classical lainez uh dish that is uh, it's like a sausage yeah it's like andouille yeah yeah it's like it's like an amazing sausage um let's see in prague you have to have dumplings and beer (laughs) or dumplings made out of beer why not uh in germany you have to have a knuckle of pork in uh switzerland you have to have rachlette which is the melted cheese so it's like heated or you could put it over yeah and you can put it over anything like potatoes usually and um um, you know, Italy is actually pretty regional. You know, there is no such thing as Italian food. So there's classic dishes that you can have in Rome that are very different from classic dishes you can have in Umbria. Um, I just had bolognese in Bologna. It was amazing. Yeah, I bet. I bet that's where it comes from. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. <laughs> and Greece, you have to try grilled octopus. Yeah. You know, that's been hanging off the rooftops of, of these, you know, tavernas and whatnot. And, you know, Spain is a culinary dynamite, you know, with what's happening in Barcelona uh, and Bilbao, yeah, up there. And then Amsterdam, I just said, I think is a new foodie capital of Europe because, uh, you know, I went to try to have brunch somewhere and they wanted me to wait 45 minutes to this really trendy hip. I mean, all the hipsters from L.A. and Brooklyn have gone to... Amsterdam, for sure. So Food Holland is this great place. Um, and just the, the, the food scene in Amsterdam is just taking off big time. Craziest thing you've ever eaten in a foreign country? Craziest thing? You've done any of the insects or something in uh, Asia? Or you've done any kind of strange animal? Yeah, I've fried, um, you know, crickets and things like that. That's not a big deal. But I'll tell you, in Mongolia, they serve a lot of mutton. And mutton, you know, is like uh, just old sheep and, and you know, in, in, it's very tough. And we had it with veg and rice or with veg and potatoes. That's it. And it was just that kind of rotation. And it just got super, super boring. But um, I'm a pretty adventurous eater. The mare's milk was pretty tough. Mare's milk. Yeah, so it's a female horse. They milk yeah. 
the female horse and it's fermented and you try it and this is what you're greeted with in a yurt and they uh, just present it to you and it's sour it's kind of like a milky kombucha and they make a cheese out of that curd from the mare's milk and it's like a hard sour cheese it looks like parmesan but does not taste like parmesan so you know in argentina with the gauchos i've eaten you know all different parts of the cow um i think what most people um you know when it comes to asia especially like japan the breakfasts are weird in japan you know a lot of fish a lot of things that you are just as a westerner you're not you're not used to at all yeah uh, you got a good stomach? Any sickness anywhere? Ever uh, anything take you down? No. I mean, in Morocco, we got pretty sick of the food because it's just a rotation of like couscous and, you know, tagine and things like that. But I've never had Deli Belly or Montezuma's Revenge because we follow very strict um, family rules. So uh, it's, you know, no uh, salads really. Um, it's stay away from dairy as much as you can. And if it's like a fruit, make sure you can peel the fruit. And if you're kind of sensible with those sort of rules and don't drink, you know, anything but bottled water in in countries where you don't trust the water, then you're going to be fine. How are you on alcohol intake in a place like uh, Russia when everybody greets you with vodka and you have to like, it's almost polite. You have to sit down and do a shot with them. Oh, well, my liver is very fortified, let me tell you that. (laughs) That's the best part of travel, to be honest, when you find these common denominators and you can find that with booze or coffee or tea or or whatever the local drink is or music. So in, you know, Russia and on the Trans-Mongolian, people were greeting me with with vodka like this. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to be tipsy for the next couple of hours here because they just want to sit and talk and have this bottle of vodka with you. And once the bottle comes out, it does not go away until it's empty. I think it was Anthony Bourdain who said, uh, you know, I don't care how tough you think you are. Any Russian can drink you under the table. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And any Polish person. And actually, I prefer Polish vodka to to Russian vodka. And Polish people can easily drink you under the table. So uh, if you had a magic wand or something and you could change something about um, travel, that you could just do away with something or create something, what would it be? I would do away with like visas. I think that is just, yeah, man, that is just a bunch of nonsense and it's complicated and it really drags people down and it can get people in some pretty serious trouble. In Russia, if you violate your visa, you can go to jail and you have to have a court hearing to get a new visa. And I mean, that's pretty scary stuff. I was actually relieved when I left Russia because I didn't violate my visa. I was like, good, I didn't go to jail in Russia. But yeah, if I could wave a magic wand, I think that would also open people up to more possibilities. Biggest mistake people make uh, with flying, other than overpacking? They, um, I think the common mistake that most people make when it comes to flying is that they don't use their time wisely. They, uh, you know, if you're a professional like you and I are, you're probably working, right? I mean, it's a great time to pound out a bunch of work, articles, emails, all of that stuff. Or sleep. Yeah, or sleep. And I think for a lot of people who don't take advantage of that time to sleep and set their body clock to that local time. Like I traveled with my father-in-law when I proposed to my wife and they came with us on this engage in this proposal trip. And my father-in-law just watched movies after movies after movies on the train. And then he was just wasted that first day in Dublin. And I was like, dude, you should have slept on the plane. And I think when it comes to flying, you know, if you're checking a bag, you're opening yourself up to all kinds of possible disasters whereas if you're carrying on you're really footloose and fancy fancy free and very very flexible do you recommend any kind of luggage or anything on your site and if so what kind of uh, carry-on or is there certain brands or something that you like yeah and full disclosure you know (laughs) some of these guys are my sponsors and i have contracts with them and whatnot but um you know eagle creek is a southern california company that has been making bags and luggage for 40 years and they have a no matter what warranty and i always tell people if you look at the handle the zipper 
and the wheels, if those are well made, you're going to be in business. So typically bags sold at like Costco or Marshalls, they're just not going to do it for you. They may, la- may last one trip. But if you're a serious traveler and, and want to have that confidence, you may want to go with like a brand like Eagle Creek. Uh, Bricks is an Italian company that they're more fashion forward. But, you know, I've been to their factory. They hand sew things still. And it's just so well made. I like four-wheeled bags. And on the Trans-Siberian, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a nerd on this trip and have my four-wheeled carry-on and my backpack. Like, is everybody going to think I'm a loser? But no, I think everybody travels so different now and four-wheeled bags just really increase your mobility. And so I'm a four-wheeled bag carry-on, dude. Do you go with the hard uh, shell uh, bag or do you go like a softer one? So I have one of each depending on the type of equipment I'm taking. So like the Eagle Creek tarmac I have is actually hard-sided and soft-sided. So it's flexible. I can expand it. Whereas like the bricks bag is completely hard-sided, but it looks cooler and stuff like that. But hard-sided bags have come a long way. The technology um, in the materials that they're using just make it so lightweight now. So, And they tend to look a little bit cooler too. Yeah. <laughs> So wait, were you proposed in Ireland? Is that the deal? Yeah. yeah. So walk me through this. How this how this whole works? Yeah, it was a pretty rad trip because um, you know I traveled with Blair, and they say you you don't know anyone until you travel with them, yeah. right? Because you're spending Good twenty. Yeah, exactly. So we actually fell in love on the road. So I, I realized, oh man, this is the girl for me. You know, on our very first trip. So flash forward a couple of years later, I'm thinking I'm going to propose to her. My godfather, who lives here in Venice Beach. Uh, has a house in Ireland that he stays at two, two months out of the year. So I thought, okay, let's all go to Ireland. Blair's of Irish descent. So I thought, great. So I decided to take my in-laws with me. And uh, we started in Dublin, did the southern route, and I proposed in front of my godparents' house in County Clare. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. Did you... Um uh, I don't know. Did you have like a hire a photographer? Have any kind of video guy there or something? No. So uh, I bought. So I didn't take the diamond with me. I left that here in L.A. And I purchased a traditional. Fear? Yeah, yeah. I just didn't want to carry the diamond with me. I didn't know how customs was going to feel about that. I didn't want to lose it. And so what happened was in Dublin, I purchased a cloth ring. And I uh, told my mother-in-law to take her like shopping and my father-in-law to distract Blair. And I went to buy a Cladar ring in Dublin. And then I pulled it out at sunset right on the coast. My godfather's house is right on the coast there. And no photographer, just us two. And then we went inside the house. My godmother was cooking. We all sat down for dinner and announced our engagement. That's beautiful. And she said yes, which is a big relief. She said no at first, actually. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just I'm totally kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, we could wrap this up now, but I mean, what all this travel that you've done, how has it changed you as a person and how does it change how you've looked at the world and people? Dude, we can talk about that for an hour um, or more all day. Uh, to me, I consider travel like my PhD in life and people is why I travel. So I want to be connected to other people, other cultures. I want to educate myself. I want to build that perspective. And that's what I think my parents originally wanted to teach me on that original journey. You know, they wanted to take this kid out of California that was into Nintendo and Little League and all of that stuff and teach him that there's a big world out there and that there's other kids like me who may not look like me, who may not speak like I do or may not have the same things, but they're kids just like me. And so, you know, I've been just super, super blessed to to really continue this process of self-development. And that's what travel is to me. Above all, it's a little selfish because I want to constantly learn and, and connect with people. But then that's why I like to give back because if, if I'm learning something, then I'm sure I have to give back here. And the people that I've met just throughout the years, each different country, you know, it just makes me think that we're just such a small little grain of salt on this planet, right? We're like that one little grain of sand in the Sahara Desert. And do you see a time when you'll ever like slow down and maybe 
take fewer trips or you think it's going to be even more as you keep going? No way, man. Pedal to the metal. Like I'm just, I just want to be out there as much as possible. And people tell me all the time, Oh, wait till you have kids, wait till you have kids. And I'm, I've been lucky enough to be friends with some pretty prominent travel people who just started having kids and they say, Oh yeah, it does change. But you know, my parents attitude was, Nope, this is important to our marriage, you know, just having us time and, you know, you kids will come along when you're old enough. And, you know, and in my culture too, it's very common for people to leave their kids with other relatives, just like I was raised. So, um, you know, I may take my kids and I notice that other international travelers like Germans and Swiss people, they're constant, that doesn't slow other people down. So I don't get why Americans always say, you know, oh, well, wait till you have kids. And plus, if you have kids, uh, they have a lot of uncles to uh, look after them. (laughs) There's no shortage of uh, family members. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we could finally uh, make this happen. And I know I've been chasing you around and I drop phone calls and everything else. So I appreciate you doing this and and thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. And also give your uh, website and any other places you want to send them. Sure. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Sure. It's it's been it's been a blast. Uh, so my website is Angels Travel Lounge. That's A N G E L S Travel with one L and then lounge with the other L. <laughs> and then you can find me on Instagram, angels underscore travels and uh, YouTube, the travel ambassador. Or if you really want to be correct on hell. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Man. I appreciate it. Somebody just stop calling you. Hey.